It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. What will President Biden's plans mean for the American economy and for America's partners and rivals in trade and business around the world? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long and coming up on today's show, how the EU wants to rebalance the global trading order in the post-Trump world. We act together with others wherever we can and we act autonomously wherever we must. And why, despite a return to economic growth, the Communist Party is busy reining in China Inc. The era of freewheeling expansion for China's massive tech firms appears to be coming to an end. First, America's new president inherits an unenviable intray. The US economy is in a state of crisis. The pandemic has already cost the country about as many jobs as the global financial crisis did a decade ago. And it's far from over. I'd like to talk to you about our way forward. The two-step plan of rescue and recovery. Last week, Joe Biden unveiled a bold $1.9 trillion package, larger than anything that was announced in the wake of the financial crisis. Direct cash payments, extended unemployment insurance, rent relief, food assistance, keeping essential frontline workers on the job, aid to small businesses. These are the key elements to the American Rescue Plan. The task ahead is to ensure that that money will stimulate the economy. Some economists are encouraged by the plans, revising upwards their expectations of American growth for 2021 and beyond. But others argue such large public spending could come at too high a cost. The emergency stimulus that's taken place already is about $3.9 trillion. So what he is proposing is to add about 50% to what's been done already. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. The most expensive thing are these $1,400 checks to everyone, or almost everyone. That's designed to top up the $600 checks that were in the bill that passed in December to a round total of $2,000, which is a number that was first suggested by President Trump and then subsequently became Democratic policy. There's also some other stuff in there. There's help for state and local governments. There's an extension of unemployment insurance. There's money for schools and colleges. And there's money spent on distributing the vaccine. So why do you think he's he's taking the decision to start off with such a, a big bang announcement? Well, it's based on the view of his advisors that the American economy is in a really horrible state. And you look at the headline labor market statistics, and it's hard to argue with that. I think the interesting question is whether this is slightly fighting the last war. The overall labor market statistics may be very bad, but generally economists are not expecting the pandemic to leave the long hangover that the global financial crisis left. Uh, that's partly because 
a lot of the economic pain that we're seeing right now is concentrated in the leisure and hospitality sectors. That's true of where people aren't spending and it's true of where the lost jobs are because these are the sectors that have been affected by lockdowns, by social distancing and so on. And no one's quite sure how rapidly those sectors will bounce back in 2021 if the vaccine and the spread of infection leads to America reaching herd immunity. If they bounce back faster, then it's quite possible that there's a, there's a snapback which exceeds the expectations of Biden's advisers. We've already seen in 2020 that the snapback after the first wave of the pandemic was in excess of what lots of forecasters thought. So I would say it's a straight line from the condition of the labour market to this idea that a really big stimulus is necessary. The question is whether that's actually appropriate or whether the labour market is currently going through something that doesn't really resemble a conventional downturn or or the damage that was done by the global financial crisis. That's interesting because I think it's true to say that up till now, you've not had many economists arguing that governments, including the United States government, are stimulating too much. But we're now getting to a point where the level of stimulus is becoming quite controversial. Yes. So most notably, uh, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, former uh, economic advisor in the Obama White House, has said that there is a danger that in particular the $2,000 total checks overheat the economy in the second half of 2022. And that's really noticeable because Larry Summers is someone who has called in general for more deficit spending. He's gone on and on about the lack of demand in the economy. So you've now got a debate raging about whether or not these checks are in fact appropriate and the overall size of the stimulus is appropriate. And I think it's just because no one really knows how much of a broad-based demand shortfall, spending shortfall there is in the American economy or there will be once we get through the tough winter that we're in. And I suppose all that raises questions about what role the Federal Reserve will play. Um, What are we likely to see in terms of monetary policy over the the next few months and years of the, the Biden presidency? Well, it's interesting. When Democrats won those two Senate seats in Georgia that made the chances of more stimulus more likely, the bond market reacted as if interest rate rises might be coming sooner real yields in the bond market started to go upwards. But since then, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has more or less signalled that the Federal Reserve will accommodate this Biden stimulus in full, should it pass, and let its effect on the economy play out. The Fed isn't at all worried about the potential of overheating America's economy. And how many people are worried about overheating, that all of this loose money and government spending might feed through into higher inflation? Well, I haven't done a poll, but what people tell me when reporting the story is that mostly they don't expect this higher inflation scenario to play out. But they tell me it's not crazy. They say last time after the global financial crisis, uh, the people who predicted higher inflation as a result of the emergency measures were obviously wrong. And this time, if you just do back event the envelope calculations about the shortfall in the economy or what it might be and compare it to the amount of stimulus, then it's not mad to think that they might overdo it temporarily in 2021. The other thing that I think is quite notable here is that usually when arguing for fiscal stimulus, for big budget deficits to stimulate the economy, people with a sort of Keynesian outlook on things will point to the multiplier effect of that spending, saying that you get good bang for buck. But so large is the stimulus that America is now considering that if you assume a large multiplier effect, a big Keynesian boost to the economy, you're actually clearly going to overshoot your targets. 
So the people calling for massive stimulus are in the slightly strange position of arguing for a small multiplier, saying that it's not going to be too effective, so you don't have to worry about that. And I think that's certainly an interesting sort of reversal of opinion. So it almost sounds from what you're saying, Henry, as if after a period when the normal laws of common sense economics have been suspended for a while, that we're back to economics as usual or economic debate as usual, even though the pandemic in terms of deaths and infections is still raging. Well, that's a really interesting point. We're certainly not there yet, but I think there are people who think we might approach that point. And maybe that's the key dividing line, because a lot of people have said, well, we've been stuck in this low inflation, low interest rate era for so long now that shouldn't we just throw everything at the wall to get out of it and see what sticks? That is one school of thought. Another would say, well, we want to get out of the low interest rate, low inflation era, but it would still be bad if the economy overheated temporarily. That's still something to be avoided. And so it's something we should worry about. Um, Certainly, this is not a debate that's been serious before the pandemic for quite a long time. We are into somewhat experimental territory and we're going to see how it plays out later this year. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. For more insight into what the beginning of the Biden era will mean for America and the world, go to economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's an introductory offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer and the links in the notes for this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, the European Union is one of America's most important trade partners. But during the Trump era, that relationship came under strain with bust-ups over state subsidies and how-to-tax tech giants unleashing a flurry of tariffs and counter-tariffs. Might Joe Biden's presidency be an opportunity to reset this crucial trading relationship? I think European trade policymakers are quite happy to see the back of the Trump administration. It's been a fairly rough four years. Samir Keynes is our trade and globalisation editor and hosts a podcast called Trade Talks. If you look at what they're doing right now, the Europeans are are on a sort of charm offensive. They are shouting to anyone who will listen that they are ready to work with America. I spoke to Sabina Vyand, the Director General of the Department for Trade at the European Commission. Sabina gave me one recent example of the problems that they have faced. She told me how they were in the middle of negotiations to resolve a really long-running dispute over aircraft subsidies. The World Trade Organization, WTO, had ruled that both the US and the EU were breaking the rules. We thought that we would have a possibility to settle this with the outgoing administration. We indeed started a process which seemed to be on a decent track. But then in the middle of this conversation, which was still ongoing in uh, December, I think we had a couple of hours of advance warning, 
we learned that the US revved up the sanctions on the last day of the year. And that, of course, uh, then put an end to the discussions that had been ongoing. I think the Europeans hope that the incoming Biden administration will be a, a bit friendlier, a bit more communicative and a bit more willing to do deals. I think they also hope that they might be able to work with the Americans on problems they share, like climate change, but also China. I'm glad you mentioned China. I was going to ask about that. I mean, how does all this new enthusiasm for transatlantic cooperation fit in with the bilateral investment deal that the EU has just signed with China, apparently without consulting the US? I don't think that that bilateral investment deal was received particularly well on the US side. There aren't many clear channels of communication between the transition team and the Europeans. So there was one tweet that the incoming Biden team did that made their concerns quite clear. I think what made this really difficult was that the EU and China essentially announced the deal, but they didn't publish text. So no one could actually see what was in it. And then they jumped to the worst possible conclusions. Now, the text comes out this week. So we will soon find out what exactly the US has signed up to. Has it tied its hands and, and given up leverage that could have been helpful? Sabina was trying to provide some reassurance, though. She said that in some areas, provisions would benefit everyone as they were made on an MFN or a most favored nation basis. So China was making promises that all of its trading partners would benefit from. The market access commitments that China has taken in the services sector, they are taken on an MFN basis. So others will benefit from that as well. So from that point of view, I think when people will see the text, I think they will see that there is a lot in it which goes beyond the bilateral EU-China relationship and which has the potential to prize open the Chinese market to the benefit of everyone. The situation is different with regard to manufacturing because there are no MFN commitments in the WTO on investment in manufacturing. So these benefits accrue to EU investors. The plan with some parts of this deal seems to be to use them as building blocks for an eventual multilateral agreement at the WTO. Sabina mentioned that bits on forced technology transfer did match what was in America's phase one deal with China. And so maybe that could be a good basis to get some kind of joint statement at the next WTO meeting and broaden those rules out to include more members. Okay, so let's assume the incoming Biden administration can let bygones be bygones with the EU. What else could they do together? That is the big question. Now, historically, the US has been frustrated that the EU talks a good talk, but rarely puts its own skin in the game. So working together from the US perspective really means the EU has to get tougher, it has to apply its own pressure and not just talk tough while America is being tough. Now, if you look at what the EU is doing, they are trying to do that. They are adding to their set of instruments when defending against China. And one thing they could do is coordinate on that with America. So talk to them when applying these constraints. This makes a lot of sense from an American perspective. If they want to stop China from buying something, it's a good idea to coordinate with the Europeans so that the Chinese can't just swap suppliers and get the thing from Europe instead. And finally, Sumer, did you 
talk to Ms. Verhant about the pandemic at all? Yes, I did. I spoke to her because there was actually something I'm a little unclear about. There's been a lot of chatter about something called open strategic autonomy and also a lot of people making fun of that phrase for not really meaning anything. And at the time when that phrase really came into prominence, it seemed to be motivated by this realisation that for some things, the EU was very dependent on the Chinas of the world for critical supplies and they needed to be more strategic about that. I asked Sabina if she could clarify this phrase in the context of the pandemic. The crisis has had an impact in terms of adding open in front of strategic autonomy. Because what we have seen at the beginning of the pandemic was a reflex of countries closing in on themselves around the world and even inside the EU. Now, we were scrambling to rectify this. It took us a few weeks to deal with restrictions that had been introduced on protective equipment, etc. But in a way, this was a shock. This disruption also of supply chains was a shock that made everyone realize to what extent we actually depend on openness and that that is the basis of the EU's prosperity. So what does open strategic autonomy mean? It obviously does not mean autarky or self-sufficiency. I would say open strategic autonomy is a mindset which means we act together with others, multilaterally or bilaterally, wherever we can, and we act autonomously wherever we must. And the whole of it adds up to the EU standing up for its values and interests. Our thanks to Sabina Viant. And Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, GDP figures released on Monday, January the 18th, confirm that China was among just a handful of countries to register any economic growth at all last year. In any other year, expansion of 2.3%, would have been greeted with gloom. It's the slowest in four decades. Yet today it looks positively healthy. Though the economic rebound is cause for celebration in Beijing, government concern has been mounting over the activity of some of the country's biggest and most dynamic corporations. As America's tech giants were deplatforming the sitting president, the Chinese Communist Party has been flexing its muscles, toying with a new system of control over Chinese business. So the era of freewheeling expansion for China's massive tech firms appears to be coming to an end. Beijing is beginning to throw its weight around as it empowers its regulators. Don Weiland is the Economist China business and finance correspondent. Regulators have basically turned a blind eye to antitrust concerns at some of these companies for many years. And frankly, companies like Alibaba and Tencent have been symbols of China's technological prowess. They've been magnets for foreign investment. So you can imagine how regulators have not wanted to get in the way of that trend. But that seems to be changing. Antitrust regulators are clearly stepping up enforcement. The State Administration for Market Regulation, which is a relatively new oversight body, has issued a draft of regulations which is taking aim at some anti-competitive practices at companies like Alibaba and Tencent. The new rules are not necessarily unjustified. This area of business has been under-regulated for several years, and that's given a small number of companies incredible market power. 
In that sense, it's actually quite easy to draw some comparisons with America and the antitrust campaign against Facebook. So besides publishing a whole lot of new rules and toughening up regulatory structures, what in concrete terms has the administration been doing to these firms? They've actually been doing quite a bit. So in November, regulators halted the $37 billion IPO of Ant Financial just days before it went public. Ant is the payments and lending affiliate of Alibaba. Both groups were founded by Jack Ma. He's, of course, uh, one of China's most famous private sector entrepreneurs. He's super high profile in China. He's very outspoken, but he hasn't been seen in public since all of this started to unfold. It's, it's unclear why or where he is. Um, the company hasn't been saying much about it, but his lack of visibility has been interpreted as some form of state pressure on Alibaba. The market regulator has also launched an antitrust probe into Alibaba. Uh, it's the first of its kind. No one has really ever seen anything like this. So you can imagine that it's been a bit of a shock to the private sector, to global investors, really to anybody who's been following tech in China recently. One thing to keep in mind is that the regulatory strengthening isn't just hitting Chinese groups. Uh, in January, the Ministry of Commerce issued a set of measures that are designed to fight back against U.S. sanctions. These measures will allow Chinese companies to sue other groups that have followed foreign sanctions if the companies have been hurt by the, the sanctions in question. The government can also take action against companies that are complying with U.S. sanctions. Many other countries have similar rules. The multinationals are still trying to make sense of what this means for them. But the fear is that these measures will force companies to choose between abiding by U.S. sanctions or Chinese law. It's a very tough spot for a large transnational corporation to be in. Indeed, what you're saying all adds up to a, a chilling uh, business climate, doesn't it? How is it actually affecting the way private firms go about their business? It's early days in terms of how all of this will play out. But in terms of the real world dollar impact, I mean, we've really seen quite a huge uh, shift in what's going on. So the halting of the anti-IPO and, and changes to how it will be regulated, of course, will force this company to be revaluated. Uh, I'm sure when it prices again, it will be revalued at a much lower valuation. It's also unclear when this IPO will actually even happen. The uncertainty around Alibaba has caused it to shed tens of billions of dollars from its market cap. I think until Jack Ma resurfaces, there's going to be a lot of questions around the, the management of this company. And you mentioned that this is playing into the struggle on the, the broader political level between China and America and companies maybe having to choose sides in, in that battle. Are we already seeing examples of that? Well, the Trump administration has been trying to starve Chinese companies of investment and key technology inputs for several years. So by strengthening its own regulatory capabilities, this, this is one way to fight back against those sanctions. In 2019, the Ministry of Commerce created what's called the Unreliable Entities List. So this was a list that the ministry threatened to add foreign companies' names to. A nationalistic tabloid in Beijing even said that HSBC would be added to this list for assisting the U.S. Department of uh, Justice in its case against Huawei. So that list never materialized, but the new measures from the Ministry of Commerce could be used in a similar way. So you could imagine 
a multinational that has cut businesses with a Chinese company, it could now find itself in court in, in China. Interesting, isn't it, that HSBC also lost some customers in the West after coming out in support of the national security law in Hong Kong. But presumably, China is doing all this for national benefit, and it doesn't want to handicap its, its private firms. Are there benefits for, for Chinese firms in, in what it's doing? Closer connections to the state and to the Communist Party have always been an important part of, of doing business in China. More recently, we've seen a, a stronger push for party influence at private companies. Some executives that I've spoken with have, have said that, you know, this is all, you know, it's a superficial exercise and it really hasn't had much of an impact on decision making. Others have said that the closer you get to the party, the more you understand its long-term thinking um, and the easier it will be to avoid conflicts or getting on the bad side of regulators. So some level of guidance could be good. I think one thing that's clear at this point is that appearing to be out of alignment with the state can be very harmful to your business. So the problems that Alibaba and Ant Financial are facing today started with a speech made by Jack Ma in October where he compared state banks with pawnbrokers. Looking at that experience, I think it's unlikely that you'll hear private entrepreneurs making these types of public statements anytime soon. And the, the downside for not aligning with the state seems much clearer than the upside. Don Wineland, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating, or better yet, a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.